Hey, deck handlers. If you like this podcast, you might also like our sister podcast, The Upgrade. It's a new podcast from Lifehacker that explores a different topic related to self-improvement each week, hosted by Melissa Kirsch and Andy Oren. They talk with experts about self-motivation and how to handle your finances and how to create less waste. Joanna and I were recently on an episode of The Upgrade to talk about strategies and coping with the Trump administration and how to keep your strength and passion and self-care going under this really tough administration. It's kind of an extension of our Handle the Dicks segment on this podcast. You can find it where you find us on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. back to another episode of Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, during an otherwise good-natured interview with CBS's John Dickerson, Trump got so flustered by the idea of having to answer a question, he shut the whole thing down. I just wanted to find out, though, you're, you're the president of the United States. You said he was sick and bad because he had tapped you. You can just- take any way. You can take it any way you want. But I'm asking you because you don't want it you to be fake news. I want to hear it from President Trump. Me. You don't have to ask me. Why not? Because I have my own opinions. You can have your own opinions. But I want to know your opinions. You're the president of the United okay. States. It's enough. Thank you. I like how John Dickerson basically just asked him to explain where his claim came from. And Trump was like, well, my opinion doesn't matter. And then followed it up with a lot of other opinions. And then John Dickerson was like, OK, so... Tell me about where, how you formed this opinion. And then Trump's like, okay, got to go by. And he's like, no, I won't. No, I won't. No, I won't. And also he said, I don't stand by anything. He's like, what are you talking about? I don't stand by anything. And later Sean Spicer <laughs> in one of his press briefings said, somebody, a reporter asked, what did he mean by this statement? I don't stand by anything. And he did a number of verbal acrobatics and then said, I mean, I think it's clear he stands by that. No, he, that was a long back and forth exchange. And that's why I'm asking that's, for the context. Yeah. But I think the point is he made, he clearly stands by that. That's something that he made very clear. If you look at the entire back and forth. <laughs> Dummy. Trump 2020. Don't stand by anything. Trump every day of his life. Don't stand by anything. So this week, we're going to do something different. Our Dick of the Week is bad styling in political fashion, which I think is so fun. And we're not going to conduct the interview. Jezebel staffers Ellie Sheckett and Julian Escobedo-Shepard are going to. They spoke with Dominic Sebag Montefiore, who's the creative director and cutter at the very famous UK-based bespoke tailors, Edward Sexton. For people who don't know about fashion, that's a very big deal. And they spoke to him about what we can look for in political fashion, what it means, why our politicians dress the way they dress, and also why our current politicians dress so terribly. Yeah, I mean, it tends to be a navy with a white shirt and a red tie. And that is quite a political uniform. But first, our weekend weenies. So our first weenie on Monday, Alabama Representative Mo Brooks went on CNN to promote the Republicans' replacement to the Affordable Care Act, which for some reason Republicans are still pushing, despite its promise to do precisely the opposite of what a health care plan is supposed to do, which is heal. 
And in his spot, he didn't do any of the usual Republican kind of jargony. This is about patient choice. This is about the markets. This is about blah, 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 not getting stuck in a plan you don't want. Instead, he said he's just sick of worrying about sick people. My understanding is that it will allow insurance companies to require people who have higher health care costs to contribute more to the insurance pool that helps offset all these costs, thereby reducing the cost to those people who lead good lives, uh, they're healthy, uh, you know, they've done the things to keep their bodies healthy. Uh, and right now, those are the people who've done things the right way that are seeing their costs skyrocketing. Now, in fairness, a lot of these people with pre-existing conditions, they have those, co those conditions through no fault of their own. And I think our society under you know, those circumstances needs to help. This quote, I love when Republicans accidentally tell the truth. I think that's one of the great joys of life when they say, yeah, it's because I don't believe that sick people are good people. Like, we know that's what you think. Thank you for saying it. Our next weenie is Teresa Manning, who is a former lobbyist for the National Right to Life Committee and then later a legislative analyst for the conservative think tank Family Research Council. So she's very anti-abortion, anti-choice. And she is now the woman who is going to be serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Population Affairs at the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the government agency responsible for public health policy. So she's this prominent anti-abortion activist who's now been in charge, essentially, of helping create policies for reproductive health, in part. And one of her here's one of her fun beliefs— in 2003, it, she told NPR, quote, of course, contraception doesn't work. Teresa Manning, okay, so she's also in charge of the, of the Title X program, which gives family planning funding for people without health insurance and poor Americans. And so Teresa Manning is literally in charge of family planning, but she doesn't believe in family planning. This is only the most recent appointment in a series of appointments in which the people have, who have been put in charge— of their departments or their cabinet positions, know absolutely nothing about them or want and to actively destroy the And don't that, believe in the concept that their department is founded around. Like, what is family planning for Teresa? What is she going to fund? She's going to fund, like, like how to look for the quickening. Like, abstinence education. Well, yeah. I mean, for sure. That. Yeah. It's crazy. And they're also, of course, anti-abortion. So not only is there no contraception, there's— I mean, that—yeah, that that part's sadly not surprising. No. The contraception thing being like, how do we expect contraception to work every time? Like, number one, it doesn't, but it works most of the time. And where have you been, <laughs> you dummy? Our next weenie is Jeff Sessions' Justice Department because they are pursuing a case against Desiree Feruz, a Code Pink activist, who said she involuntarily laughed during the Sessions hearing but still was arrested for, quote, disorderly and disruptive conduct intended to impede, disrupt, and disturb the orderly conduct of the hearing. And that's insane and in how— how insecure do you have to be to pursue these charges, especially since the officer who arrested her was a rookie cop who had never worked a congressional hearing before, nor had they ever made an arrest before. But 
that woman, Desiree Feruz, was found guilty of the two charges she was faced with, disorderly conduct and parading or demonstrating on capital grounds. She was convicted with two other activists in the group she was with, and this happened on Wednesday. And she, along with the two other people she was convicted with, face up to one year in prison, basically for protesting and then also for laughing. Laughing is now a crime under the Trump administration. I mean, seriously, it's crazy. Now it's time for an exciting new segment called Spicy Time. This could also be renamed Where is Sean Spicer Hiding? But we already have a Republican hiding segment, so we need to, like, spice Spice it it up, up, you know. On Tuesday, Sean Spicer was at his regular 2 p.m. briefing, and the Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney was talking to reporters and Sean thinking, I think, that nobody would notice that he could, like, disappear himself into the back wall, left the room. And here is the amazing clip of reporters trying to get him back. I just want to be like, Sean. Have you heard the, all those ducks? The vine yeah. of all those ducks being like, wah. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. I think it's just the funniest clip I've ever. studio here with Dominic Sebag Montefiore, who works for legendary bespoke tailor Edward Sexton. Dominic, we are so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I'm Ellie Sheckett. I'm a staff writer at Jezebel. I'm Juliana Escobedo Shepard. I am the culture editor at Jezebel. Um, Dominic, you look amazing Thank today. You. We were Juliana and I were really nervous about what to wear in front of you, <laughs> and, cl- and clearly we kind of just, or I kind of just gave up. Because no, you guys look great. <laughs> you guys look great. <laughs> I didn't have anything tailored enough. Um, so, Dominic, tell us a little bit about your professional background first. Um, what does it mean in practice to be a tailor at Edward Sexton? Who is your typical client? Okay, so um, Edward Sexton is a small company. So working there, I am dealing with everything from selling to customers, helping customers choose cloth, cutting patterns, social media, you know, fixing machinery that goes wrong, everything that happens with a small business. The company itself, we we are traditional Savile Row tailors that do things in quite a, a British way, but we have quite, um, quite strong, dramatic, masculine lines. Um, unlike most Savile Row tailors, we do actually do an awful lot of women's wear, women's bespoke suits. Um... And um, that started sort of back in the 60s and 70s with the likes of Twiggy and Bianca Jagger and moved through to sort of women who like to wear suits out or for work to the likes of Naomi Campbell is a a very good customer of ours today. So, yeah, and I'm over here in New York seeing our U.S. clients. Your economy seems to be very buoyant at the moment and people seem to be keen to spend money on suits, which is great. 
Take advantage of it while you can. <laughs> um, so you're a feminist, Taylor. I like that you have a, you're an equal opportunity, <laughs> Taylor. Women's bespoke suits. You know, you actually don't. When you think of Savile Row, you don't necessarily think of women. Yeah, and, and so, Edward Sexton tutored Stella McCartney, right? Yeah, he uh, he Stella trained with Edward, and Edward actually helped her with her first few seasons at Chloe. Yeah. But as much as I I consider myself a feminist tailor, when I look at our price list, I actually feel a little bit uncomfortable because we charge a considerable amount more for maybe 20% more for women's clothing than men's. And Why is that? Because women tend to want their clothes much closer fitting than men. Mm. And they have um they're more curvy than men. So the difference where you have to get out to and come into is greater. Mm-hmm. and they want it closer. And because we're working with fabrics like wool as opposed to stretch fabrics, to shape and mold that actually is really quite difficult because you're pushing the fabric to the limit of what it can do to create those lines. Mm-hmm. Not only that, women have much higher expectations on that look than men. Men don't tend to require things so close. So it it, it makes the process more difficult. And also, not all women, but a lot of our female clients fluctuate in weight. Mm. Um, and so sometimes it feels like you're chasing a, me- a moving target, depending on <laughs> what time of the month you see a female client. <laughs> and um, actually, one of our clients, male clients, his mother was a seamstress, and she she said to me that we should um, see all of our female clients on the same calendar date each month to try and help minimize that. Because... She, that's what she did back in the day when she was a seamstress. So women's tailoring is is definitely very challenging, but we love doing it and we've got lots of very happy women's cust- women customers. So speaking of uh, men having low expectations, lower expectations for their suits, <laughs> um, last fall I called Dominic to discuss why Donald Trump looked so shitty in his suits uh, for a piece that we ran in October. And things for Trump in terms of what he wears seem to have stayed more or less the same for him, even though he's president now. Um, So let's (laughs) dig back into this. What is it exactly that makes Donald Trump look so bad in his suits? Before I answer that question, can I just defend myself first of all and say that it's it's not that the men are less particular. They just don't want things quite as close and quite as sexy. Right. Okay. Just to get that right first, because a lot of our male clients are very particular. Yeah, I'm sure they are. (laughs) And rightfully so. The suits are very expensive and we we try and deliver the best possible clothing ever. But now we can move on to Trump. So, yeah, I mean, so we talked about Trump several months ago and we were talking about where he got his suits made. And I said, well, I thought it was Martin Greenfield Mm -hmm. and Brioni. And it looks like he's moved away from Martin Greenfield and moved more to Brioni in recent years. Uh, Martin Greenfield had traditionally dressed a lot of presidents and isn't as young as he used to be and his sons are in charge of the business. But I think it's still one one of the better made U.S. suits if it was anyone else, it would be surprising that he wasn't supporting a U.S. business with which is making suits in the U.S. but choosing to support an Italian business. But you know, <laughs> he doesn't seem to have too many qualms with that yeah. kind of thing. I'm surprised that he chose an Italian business, honestly. Yeah. yeah well, it, it, yeah, that seems to be one of his uh, better qualities: is sort of fluidity and. Um, <laughs> 
mind. He's not attached to things, is he, so much. <laughs> um, but So what goes wrong for him? What wh- Because uh, he just sort of looks off. And I think the most obvious thing is the ties are very long. The, the ties are long. And I, I just don't get the impression that he, he puts that much time and effort into it. And the question about why he's wearing Brioni is also an interesting one. Because I know there's a Brioni store in the Trump Hotel in mm. D.C. So, you know, I know some business people like to work... Um, in a way that can support each other. And maybe right. there's there's some of that there. Or maybe he's just supporting a business that's in his hotel and it's completely innocent. But um, I don't think he's an easy figure to dress. You know, he's a big guy. And if he's buying ready-to-wear suits, it's not necessarily that easy because when someone puts on a lot of weight, their skeleton stays the, the same, but they have to um, balance for it slightly. So they tend to uh, lean back a little bit so they're balancing a bit more. But that's really the only change. But where, when someone becomes a bit chubby, where they put on the weight can vary quite considerably. So someone who's a typical figure is going to be closer fitting, a, a slimmer figure, you know, a size 40 or 42 or 38, um, is probably going to be less different from the clothes, the, the, the figure that clothes is designed for than a bigger guy, just because it could be you know, you could be have a big belly at the front. You can store your fat at the back and things like that. So, in his defense, if he's buying ready to wear, it's not that easy. But I think he's um, going for someone like Brioni. He's wearing quite luxurious fabrics, quite soft and delicate fabrics. He's probably not going for the cheapest fabrics, um, and I think he probably likes to feel comfortable in his clothes. And yeah, so I think it, these soft fabrics that he's wearing, these luxurious fabrics, have a tendency to crease more. They feel fantastic when you're wearing them. They have a tendency to crease. They don't hold their press as well. And they lose their shape. And, you know, a bigger guy can benefit from a sturdier suit because you can use the body and the fabric to mask imperfections in the body and create shapes that you want to emphasize and minimize. So you can emphasize the chest and the shoulders and hit the waist as close as you can and that way creating the illusion of a smaller waist, which is what we try and do with all of our clients, women are much more in tuned with how to create those illusions mm. with their different figure types. And it, it's something that men seem to be less aware of how to do. What does a fabric, a stronger fabric, project okay, so versus the, a softer one? The result of the stronger fabric compared to what he's doing, something with a bit more body, would mean that the suit would look sharper. It wouldn't stretch out so much. It wouldn't look creased. So he'd look smarter, sharper, and less less crumpled. You know, he often looks mm-hmm. quite crumpled. But then the other side to that is he's a bigger guy. You know, big men tend to feel the heat a bit more. Mm-hmm. The sturdier clothes tend to be warmer. If he's doing a lot of press things, you know, he's under lights that are, often can be hot. So it might just be to be comfortable. And, you know, running a country, you don't want to be thinking about how uncomfortable your suit is, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Running a country. Um, what is the era of the suits he's wearing? Is there an identifiable trend in men's suits that you know of where the goal is to look like it's 1985? Okay. Um, <laughs> it's meant to be a dress. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, it, sorry, it was a bit subtle for me. Um, I, I think, looking at his suits, they're just very generic 
and safe and that he doesn't have to think about what's going to go with them. Yeah, I mean, it tends to be a navy with a white shirt and a red tie. And that is quite a political uniform. You know, our former prime minister, David Cameron, wore very similar things. And, you know, our prime ministers before that tended to wear similar things as well. And obviously we have Theresa May now in England, who is actually doing quite interesting things with her clothes. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn, who's, a, you know, a traditional Labour, quite left wing politician. And he's got this sort of sort of academic dress, sort of more tweedy and, and corduroy and, and less sharp because he's trying to project a different image. Um, and yeah, I mean, Trump looks like a generic businessman. But I think also, I think there is a lot of, without meaning to offend anyone, there's a lot of Americans who who tend to like to wear loose clothes. Um, And (laughs) I mean, I'm like looking down. No, that's that's different. And you know it's different. (laughs) What I'm talking about is like the business casual of a man wearing a, a baggy polo shirt or a a shirt with a button-down collar at best Mm. and like baggy chinos that have been drawn in to fit his waist with a belt. Dockers. Yeah. (laughs) And I I mean, it's not something that I really understand the cultural context of or where it's come from or why people are wearing clothes that don't fit. But, you know, for me as a Brit, everything's a bit bigger in America. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was at a steakhouse last night having dinner and... I could eat a third of the steak. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, who would want to, this is a big, like, I genuinely woke up this morning quite troubled thinking, why would anyone want to serve or order such a big piece of meat? You should go to a steakhouse in Kentucky, where I'm from. It's like even bigger and more ridiculous. But why, why do you guys do it? Why, why are there such big portions? I think Americans like to kind of throw our money around and the idea of getting that much is sort of an example of like, I can afford this and I'm going to, well, also, I mean, we're lazy and we like to eat like hogs. Also, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's like a misunderstanding of what luxury actually right. is. It's very déclassé, I would say, as a, <laughs> as a general rule. And it's a very American thing, I think, to like just want a huge portion and yeah it's a, it's an idea of luxury that is has gone completely awry <laughs> okay so that's that's really interesting so we can take that back to trump suits because mm-hmm. you know they're obviously very luxurious which and the, the primary quality that they have is how they'll probably feel for him to wear and maybe that that is his primary motivation he's not so bothered with how he looks when a client comes into us, we'll talk to them about what kind of cloth they want and how it's going to perform. We had a client who lives further south in America mm-hmm. and the, the weather's much hotter. So it's finding a balance with him of a lightweight cloth that's going to perform well in the hot, that's going to be breathable and cool for him in the hot weather, mm-hmm. but still look crisp and sharp like a heavier weight fabric. And thankfully, we've got some really wonderful fabrics that can do that. But in the way they weave them, they don't feel as soft and smooth and luxurious as what Donald Trump's wearing. Mm -hmm. And you show someone who's used to wearing these Brioni suits, these fabrics, and they they think it feels quite coarse, and it does. But on a day that's scorching hot, sorry, I was going to say 100 degrees, but that's centigrade, and I I can't (laughs) convert it to Fahrenheit, so I backed off. Um, 
you'll feel much more comfortable by having that breathability as opposed to the slightly more dense, luxurious fabric. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, he's he's probably seeing things, touching things and liking them and wearing them and isn't so bothered by how they look on him. And yeah, luxury does have different flavors for different people. matters as much as it used to that politicians look good in general, just considering the success of Trump and considering the success of Bernie Sanders, for example, who looked a mess. What does a sharp suit on a politician symbolize right now? So this this is actually quite an interesting question because the Thatcher government we had in the UK all wore bespoke suits. And I think in the UK, politicians aren't don't earn a huge amount of money when they're in politics. They earn money in other ways and often afterwards. Um, and I think as a public servant, if you look too good, if you look like you're wearing something too expensive, in the UK you get judged for that, mm. judged badly. So I'm not sure how that would be received in America because I think you you, you may have more of a situation where you want person who's running your country to look more successful yeah i think the man in the street doesn't dress as dress as smart as he did 20 30 40 years ago so politicians aren't held to the same standard but i do think a man in a smart suit well put together still has that element of respectability and trust and trustability and you know that is what a good suit can provide someone. But then I, I completely understand why someone like Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want to conform to that. The leader of our opposition party doesn't want to conform to that because he's he's representing a much more socialist stance. Mm. And so he doesn't want to look, he doesn't want to alienate his supporters. So I guess it really depends on who you're trying to communicate to. Yeah, that's always been the confusing thing about Trump is that he's he's supposedly this populist candidate, but also a billionaire, but he sort of dresses like um, somebody who might not be familiar with a, that kind of a billionaire kind of lifestyle would imagine a billionaire to be or a successful so billionaire the, to, uh, or su sorry, a successful businessman to be. So this is actually um, something I that I've thought about before. And that's sort of the, the guys who aren't earning as much money want to dress in in a way that they tend to wear the suits that are going to get them promoted, as they think, like the bolder stripes, mm. the, 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 the things that they think are more affluent. But in some ways, it can be a little bit more try-hard. Right. And their bosses will be wearing the bespoke suits, but they might be plainer and not trying so hard because they've kind of made it. And then the hedge fund clients won't be wearing a suit at all. They'll be wearing a smart pair of trousers, maybe a silk polo shirt and a cashmere jacket mm. because they don't have to make any effort at all. They can right. turn up in their shorts and a T-shirt and you have to pay attention and you have to do exactly what they ask because they've made it and they don't need to prove anything to anyone. So perhaps uh, your president 
doesn't really feel like he needs to prove anything anymore because he's done it all. Right. Kid Rock, Sarah Palin, and Ted Nugent recently visited the White House. And I was wondering if you could just describe that photograph to me, um, what they're wearing, and your opinion on it. Okay, so in the background, you've got a very elegantly tailored suit being worn by Hillary Clinton in a painting on the wall. And just below her, you've got Kid Rock wearing... um, it's, it's all black, black trousers and a black jumper with this um, quite large collared blue shirt, ju- just the collar of the shirt sticking out, and uh, and a hat. And then Sarah Palin's wearing this um, this interesting lace lace top um, that's sort of just off the shoulder, um, and it looks like a, a black skirt with a zip up, uh, up one thigh, and it's just zipped slightly above the knee. And what was the other gentleman's name? Ted Nugent. <laughs> so Ted Nugent is uh, is wearing black shirt, black jacket, dark trousers, and a hat as well. Yeah, b- being British and being a tailor, I'm wondering what these gentlemen are doing wearing hats indoors. because uh, Particularly in the Oval Office. I mean, they're not in the Oval Office in that photograph, but they certainly did not take their hats off when they did go into the Oval Office, which so, was odd. And none of them are dressed particularly smartly for the Oval Office. None of them Correct. are wearing suits. Well, I, well, no, they are wearing shoes. They're not wearing ties. A black shirt in the UK has quite a political statement. It's black shirts historically are associated with fascism in the UK. Interesting. So yeah, that's, that seems about right. That's interesting. <laughs> um, what do you think, aside from fascism? Um, what do you think their outfits sort of project to the world when when uh, guests of the president come into the Oval Office in outfits like this? That's interesting. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, they are casual, but then they're not from professional backgrounds, are they? Right. Um, and so for them, it might be quite smart. But then, you know, we have musician clients and like, mm-hmm. you know, Mick Jagger wears a suit and wears a suit well. And so did the Beatles and, and you know, other young musicians are wearing smart clothes and looking cool in it. So it's not really an excuse. And actually for... Yeah, they they sort of look like they're on a tourist outing around the White House, don't Mm. they? As opposed to going to meet the president. I feel like they dressed for like a barbecue (laughs) that they may have had on the White House lawn afterwards. I I can see that. (laughs) I can see that. Do you think that suiting trends have historically reflected the politics of their time? Yeah, they have. And whether they've reflected it gone along with it or been the opposite to try and you know encourage the opposite so you know when things went all big in the 80s was when when the recession hit to show opulence and show prosperity and possibility and then it stayed there when when that happened and yeah it's from 2008 suits got very narrow lapels got narrow trousers got narrow in fashion suits for men for sure so yeah, it does have relevance. And actually, a friend of mine in London, we were once talking, he's interested in the history of clothing, was saying to me that trousers were an industrial revolution invention because they mirrored the shape of a chimney stack on factories. Interesting. I'm not sure how much truth there is in that. But, you know, the, the yeah, is it false news? <laughs> yeah. That's so, false news is such a nice way. A nice way to say it. <laughs> that is really interesting, though. I mean, 
It seems like it could be correct. <laughs> it, it's plausible. It doesn't <laughs> it's mean it's plausible, true. plausible, right. Um, we, we do pay attention to Parliament. Sort of. It's quite entertaining at the moment. It's very entertaining. I'm very fascinated by it. Who are the best-dressed British politicians? So, yeah, I mean, I don't think our politicians are particularly well-dressed hmm. at the moment. And I think they don't want to look too businesslike and too wealthy, too professional, because they don't want to alienate the public too much, I think, for a lot of them. And previously, that wasn't the case. I think a lot of the, uh, the Thatcher cabinet wore very expensive bespoke suits, and there was no problem with that. But I think, yeah, to, to be seen to spend too much money on your clothes, people get judged. And actually, there was a story in the British press a few months ago about Theresa May's leather trousers. Did you pick up on this I one? I didn't see that, actually. I have not heard about Could Theresa she... May's leather trousers so, and would love to hear about so it. <laughs> Theresa May was criticized by a female journalist for wearing £1,000 leather trousers. And this whole conversation about, you know, commenting on women's dress as opposed to men's dress and the men in British politics wouldn't get commented on in this way came up. And then it turned out that this journalist was seen photographed with a very expensive handbag that was more expensive than Theresa May's trousers. And so there was a lot of mudslinging going yeah. on <laughs> over this. Um, what do you think Kellyanne Conway was trying to project. Did you see that photograph of her on Inauguration Day in that Gucci ensemble? Yeah. Um, it sort of baffled a lot of people um, because it, it felt a little bit like almost a costume. Um, what do you think she was trying to project with that? Can you make a guess? My instant reaction when I see it is it looks quite Thunderbirds to me. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily what she was trying to do. But I think, you know, it's got a 60s look to it. And there's a lot of 60s looks kicking around the ladies of the White House. Yeah, Melania wore a pretty um, sort of 60s uh, pale mm. pink ankle-length dress for the Easter egg roll, which it was a nice-looking dress. It was very different from what the kind of attitude that um, Michelle Obama was projecting in in past years with sort of her more casual kind of J. Crew outfits with jeans. Melania was sort of um, definitely doing a more of a 60s vibe, and I think I've noticed that from Betsy DeVos a bit as well, who's the Secretary of Education. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that you say that. But so do we think that they're channeling back to times when different people were in power that maybe may give the people confidence, hope, belief yes. in them, maybe reminding them of of people in the past. I mean, I know a lot of Melania's clothes have been a little bit similar to things that Jackie Onassis Kennedy mm -hmm. had worn. What we're really tapping back into is that these people have very good advisors who are, for their PR at least, and everything is being considered. Do you think Brexit will have an impact on your business? It will definitely have an impact on my business, um, depending on exactly what's negotiated. You know, a lot of our a lot of our clients are international. They they travel from one city to the other. They may have five homes, or they may do business in different cities. And London was always a stop off to Europe. Well, if we're not inside the eurozone, will it still be? Will finance still be in the UK? I don't know. So we need to get around a little bit more and not wait for people to come to us. Um, maybe the weak pound 
will help us. Maybe, you know, there are talks of negotiating better trade deals with Britain and America and Australia and China. So maybe these markets will become stronger markets for us. Europe, we didn't have so many European clients traditionally who lived outside of the UK, but in Europe, we've always had a lot of US clients. Edward's been coming out here since the 70s. And so Brexit is definitely going to affect all business. And as a, as a young guy who, who runs Edward Sexton with Edward, you know, it's, it is a little concerning what's going to happen to the economy in the UK in the short term. Our prime minister is starting to give some information out, but the party line tends to be Brexit means Brexit, mm. um, which isn't really useful and doesn't really inspire confidence in businesses. So it, it's this constant cycle of waiting for something to become more clear, I mm. think, is unsettling and is not good for business or for the economy. Thank you so much for coming, and I, I hope you uh, enjoyed New York. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have very much. our best segment where we take a minute to talk about how we're coping with such a relentlessly stressful political climate in how to handle the dicks. Let me just say before Prachi tells us how she handles the dicks, I was at the gym last night and on the TV show, on the TV was, uh, it was CNN and the the Chiron was impending nuclear war. <laughs> and I you erupted into laughter right I then I tried and there. to take a picture, but I was running and I like couldn't. It was too hoppy. Prachi, how are you handling the dicks? Well, impending nuclear war aside, uh, there's really not that much I can do about that either way, I guess, unless I start working on building a bunker, which I I sadly, I can't afford to do that. Join the UN. If any of our listeners have bunkers, Joanna and I would really appreciate an invitation. You need to be cat-friendly. Oh, Joanna, we can't bunker together. I'm allergic to cats. We'll have to bunker separately. Okay, so please (laughs) extend an invitation to us and then also build a wall where the cat can live freely. Build build Trump's border wall between Prachi and my cat. Um, Well, this past week I got a tattoo. Yeah. um, That is kind of related to... The Trump administration because it says, I hate Trump. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I definitely did not get a Trump tattoo. Um, it's a picture of Trump's face it's and a it's picture. like, I don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> this man, bad. <laughs> this guy, bad. Um, no, so I got a tattoo of a pen and a paintbrush in the shape of an X. And it was basically right after the election. I was really downtrodden and upset and sad. And I did some soul searching, I think the way a lot of people did in the days after the election. And there was a moment where I thought about, like, what is the point? What is the point of doing this writing, this journalism in this in the era of fake news? Like, who is reading this? Why bother? Like, why bother with my art? Because I also paint. And then in the midst of that, you know, mini existential crisis, I was actually seeking out a lot of other writing and art to keep me going. And then that's when I realized that 
as cliche as it sounds, that the art and writing that we're doing is actually really important, or it can be really important. And if for no other reason, then it sustains ourselves during this time. So I then felt like I needed to double down on my commitment to be an artist and a writer. And I just loved the idea of putting like a pen and a paintbrush in the shape of an X, which is the symbol of like strength and resistance, I guess. So um, anyway, I got it. And I went, I saw this great tattoo artist in Brooklyn. Her name is Stephanie Tamez. She's a badass. You should look her up. And she did a really great job, and I'm very happy with it. And it, yeah. Prachi, that's a beautiful <laughs> thought. And I'm so happy. I saw a picture in it. It looks awesome. Thank you. Here's what I did. I've been having some bug problems in my apartment, as always. And I don't even think these are such bad bug problems. I think I'm just, like, a phobic. And... It's because I now know my floors don't touch my walls. Like, the apartment is not built well. So, like, my there are big gaps between my floors and my walls. Not big, but, like, bug-sized big. And one night, a week or two ago, I got really—I got in a real frenzy, and I, ta- I like, taped just, like, clear masking tape, all, like, all of the holes or, like, many of the holes. And then yesterday— I was at home working, and I heard, because my senses are so elevated now because I'm so (laughs) scared of bugs, and I heard, like, tap, 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 tap. And I was like, is someone trying to get through that tape? And I looked, (laughs) and I saw an antenna and Ah. a cockroach nose Ah. pushing up on my tape barrier. And I was like, You can hear cockroaches. I know. You're like, that's your superpower. You're like cockroach woman. I'm like a cat. Roach woman. My (laughs) senses are just very cat Cat woman. And so, and I was like, victory, I am vindicated. And then yesterday, I bought four tubes of caulk, and I caulked <laughs> every— <laughs> Four tubes of caulk. It's it's just always funny, no matter how mature you are. Caulk. And then caulked every hole in my house. And I also, in the holes that were too big to caulk, I put electrical tape over them. My home is a fortress, and if a bug can get through my fortress, and if a bug can get through my defenses, they deserve to have the house. (laughs) So you you have built a fortress of cock. I have built a cock fortress. Yeah. And that's why I'm handling the dicks, by building a cock fortress. By buying (laughs) buying cock and building cock fortresses. I'm handling the dicks by surrounding myself with cock. Took a couple tries, but I think we got there. I think think we got to the right joke. We did. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you so, so much to Dominic Sebag Montefiore, Ellie Sheckett, and Julianne Escobedo Shepard. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondin Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. <laughs>